Welcome, everyone, to the Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Finish feeding the birds, will you? The Defenders podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 101, The H Word, is brought to you by Hand Courier Services. We'll only charge you an arm and a leg. Well, Pete, it has been a long road, a fun road to get here. We've had, what, four seasons of lead up. And uh, the time is finally here. This is the day, of course. Four seasons, five seasons. Five. We've had, you know, four series took to get here. Um, it, it, it feels like longer than it actually was to think that we were sitting down um, in April of 2015 to record our first Daredevil podcast after having done Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then Agent Carter. And we're here, Matt, and I'm giddy. Absolutely. I, I do apologize, my math. That was a genuine mistake. However, uh, I wonder if, you know, subconsciously on some sort of Freudian level, I wonder if there was one of those seasons that I'm trying to suppress. I won't tell you which one. Regardless, Pete, the time has come to press go on the Defenders podcast. Let's crack open the case files to see what our Defenders had on the docket. Matt, we begin in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, in a largely dialogueless uh, sequence where uh, we have a man fighting uh, a woman, and then it becomes uh, fairly clear there's a familiar player in the scene. Indeed, Pete. Uh, we get a shot looking out of the grate, and then the camera goes down. We're in the sewers. Pete, you mentioned being giddy before. We have jokingly, or not so jokingly, pondered if maybe the endgame for the Defenders is Defenders versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I was hopeful for about two seconds. No, no. A sword fight is afoot. Or maybe, Pete, is it a hand? Ooh, ooh. I saw the braid. I saw the sword. Um, there are uh, long shots that are kind of muddled on the composition and intermediary as well. So I'm like, is this Colleen Wing? Is this Electra? Uh, they really kind of tease that out. And I, I think effectively. Um, the tease is effective. Uh, I kind of felt that there was perhaps too much quick cutting. If you're going to train these uh, these stunt people or these actors in in screen fighting, let it play out for more than a third of a second. Uh, also, Pete, just want to make a general observation. There were people who shall remain nameless who said that this scene opens with Danny Rand, Colleen Wing, and the Punisher. They said that after San Diego Comic Con, Pete. No one was punished. No one was Frank <laughs> Castled. There is no Punisher here. Hey, people, don't tweet so fast about the episode you think you just saw at San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, uh, way to way to go there, guys. But uh, suffice to say, uh, with Danny Rand showing up, the Iron Fist for some fisticuffs with this woman with the sword who winds up. Uh, as we discover later, being Electra, Colleen Wing, 
giving chase as well. And the, the fight that kind of takes place, a rather quick confrontation that Danny has with Electra in the dark, uh, hitting her once with that charged up fist. And um, I loved it kind of kind of smoked for a second there. So well done. I've seen a lot of people say, too, that um, Defenders has already improved Danny Ran from <laughs> Iron Fist, which I'm not convinced is wrong. A couple of thoughts there. First of all, I did not get definitive um, evidence from this episode that uh, that it was Electra. Maybe maybe Pete, you're reading ahead. I don't know. You're spoiler. No, Pete. it's un- it's undoubtedly Electra. Okay, fair enough. Uh, certainly would make sense uh, narratively and, and so forth. Um, just wanted to share that 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 at the very least was not the impression. Uh, I had gotten, but I I don't uh, I don't quibble with the execution. Uh, second of all, there are moments of pathos later on in this scene uh, where you know he he is looking at Colleen, Danny's looking at Colleen. He's just so kind of overwhelmed by the uh, the futility of it. You know they've tried to search for this guy and they finally get there and now he gets killed, so on and so forth. Where it was like, ooh, the Danny Rand character is like awful grown up since. When was oh last spring? Okay, um, they got done filming Iron Fist and then started filming Defenders. Okay, um, but yeah, it's like immediately there's more maturity to him, um, and, and I'm cool with it. You know, I don't think anybody wants nobody wants to root against Danny Rand as a character. There were execution issues, which we've discussed in depth in the uh, Iron Fist podcast. Here, he's a he's a better character. In the uh, this one third of the uh, scenes he appears on in this episode, yes, the man that they're uh, they're chasing, um, and Danny and Colleen hunting members of the hand. They explain to him now. Um, he tells them that the war isn't where they are in Cambodia; it's in New York City. Which Matt, of course, it does because who's the fifth defender? Wait, there's a fifth defend. Oh, the. the- the, the city the, of New York, oh, the yes. Big Apple, baby, the greatest city in the world, or to win us all over later in the episode, is it? But we'll get there <laughs> when we get there. Pete, with that, we hit the title sequence. There's neat use of the circled, diamonded, and squared letters, uh, a la the New York City subway system. Uh, some notable takeaways from the credits for this episode. Uh, S.J. Clarkson is credited as an executive producer, um, as well as uh, she is, of course, the uh, episode's director. Uh, I had read somewhere that she is only credited for executive producer for this episode, which she directed. So I don't know what's up with that exactly, but that just uh, you know struck me as slightly strange. Also receiving an executive producer credit, Pete, is Drew Goddard, who, to my knowledge, had not been an active participant in uh, Marvel Netflix since, you know, part Daredevil through, season one, yeah, man, and maybe not even active production of Daredevil season one. That said, everybody out there should be aware that oftentimes the executive producer credit is a place where people get pats on the head, and that's no disrespect to Mr. Goddard or Miss Clarkson. Just as an example, I doubt. Stan Lee did as much executive producer work for this as, say, <laughs> Jeff Loeb or, you know, um, Marco Ramirez and so forth. So for whatever it's worth, that's what I got, Pete, from the credits. 
I dig how they incorporated each of the defenders kind of in the color palette. And I think that follows through with the presentation of the episode, each kind of in the style of the series that the character came from, you know, with daredevil, we get the, you know, the, the reds and, and, um, you know, some of the quick flashes and everything there. There's a lot of, uh, purple with, uh, Jessica Jones, the uh, the hip hop inspired, uh, you know, cutting with um, Luke Cage and then some green with Iron Fist. Oh, Pete, was there color coding in this episode? Because believe me, we're going to be talking about the color coding, um, which I personally lay at the feet of uh, episode director S.J. Clarkson, although I don't know if that is uh, properly placed there. But Pete, credits over. It's a blue-hued scene where we see Jessica Jones woken in the early morning bar. It's blue slash purple because uh, that's her color, as we're going to learn as the episode unfolds. And that's the best way to begin um, after our credits here in Act 1 with Jessica Jones sleeping one off, uh, awakened by the bartender, ready for the next round, and it's morning. Nice transition to uh, she smashes her glass with that. We cut to Trish Walker's boot uh, breaking the surface of a puddle. So, you know, smash splash, if you will. Ooh, that just came off off the top of the dome, Pete. That wasn't written down. <laughs> uh, Trish's car is about to be towed, but effortless exposition. It is pulled off the toe by the superpower Jessica Jones. That's right, new viewers. Jessica Jones, super strength. Are you clear on it? Yeah, and um, I kind of was surprised by the seeming impunity that she was able to do this with. Um, but again, in keeping with the character, we, we have seen her stop a car with her bare hands before. Maybe this cop's heard about her and, uh, all right, lady, you've just pulled uh, Patsy's car off the, uh, the hitch there. I'm not going to mess with you. Well, though I'm going to wag my finger a bit at a number of points in this episode where they are doing expositional heavy lifting, uh, either introducing things to a new audience, uh, which is to say people who have not seen um, some or any of the feeder series, or they are filling in blanks uh, to say, between last time and now, here's what happened. Uh, so I will be wagging my finger at that general action. That said... I will also acknowledge that it's necessary to pull all these things together. Uh, and we see that as the scene unfolds, Trish says there's a second producer who wants to talk about, well, Pete, basically to talk about Jessica Jones season one effortless <laughs> recap. See what I'm going to be interested in is this show and the buzz it's already getting. We are recording. It is 9.15 p.m. on uh, Friday, August 18th, um, late in the day of the show's release. I am super interested to see once – as popular as this is and um, Defenders has been trending all day and I'm sure it will for the weekend, do – people get into this show first and go back and watch the other shows mm. <laughs> well pete if they do and if you're listening to this podcast just so you know search for fantastic <laughs> geek that's fantastic with the ph 
we have podcasts for everything Marvel, including all the uh, Marvel Netflix shows and all the other Marvel TV shows. We got you covered, but you know, <laughs> effortless backstory, Pete. Look, we <laughs> did what Trish just did. Real life is written by fiction, and fiction is inspired by real life. It's all a snake eating itself, and it's all beautiful. Absolutely. Jess stood up to a horrible person, not named here, but that was David Tennant's Kilgrave, the Purple Man, and um, some some discussion here, some inside baseball from uh, Trish Walker, uh, a radio host, about you know that kind of uh, publicity that you can't buy. This could get some bills paid. When we last left Jessica Jones, she was starting to get phone calls from people in need. And it seems she hasn't really gone after those, at least to this point. Although in the course of this episode, uh, we see that change. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll get there properly in, in a little bit uh, in that scene. I think they're... I, don't know. I think they're playing a little loosey-goosey with the way Jessica Jones season one ended for narratively important uh, reasons for this uh, for this outing. But uh, we'll get there when we get there. The scene wraps up with uh, Trish finally sipping her coffee, which has whiskey. Wait, that belongs to Jessica Jones. Wah, wah. <laughs> with that, Pete, we're going to cut to a, a yellow-hued portion of the story and... Drop the needle on some some blazing hip hop and R and B, which is how the episode signals visually and uh, and uh, with sound that it's Luke Cage time. Yeah, in Seagate Prison here, and uh, some some ominous shots of his cuffs, and then we see inmates cheering. Um, I found myself initially disappointed, like oh. Okay, they're going to let him out. However, I think it's carried off really well by the fact that once he's told all the paper pushing worked, that, um, you know, before he's uncuffed, he undoes the cuffs with his bare hands. So Luke was playing along. We we knew that he made the decision to go to prison at the end of uh, Luke Cage season one, that it was the right thing to do. Um, that he was, he was cornered. He could go on the run, but he was going to play by the rules here. He's a man of honor. And I thought this was just cheeky enough to allay my concerns about, all right, but he went to prison and prison things, and it was going to be an uphill roll uh, road for him to get out. Um, that made it okay for me. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that, much of what this episode asks of the audience is to say, hey, it's the team-up movie, so we got to help them to team up a little bit. Certainly the spirit, well, the spirit of Luke Cage season one, the way it ends, and if we take the uh, the Marvel timeline as generally being stuff happens when it is released, you didn't have this sense of, oh man, Pete, he's going to prison for a mere nine months it kind of was like and then prison for on and on until who knows what um that said are we really gonna have half of the defenders where he's like oh man i can't wait until my parole hearing in two weeks in 10 days in seven days like you know pick up the pace here fine there's the there's the paper pushing and um 
We also, of course, get some effortless recap in there. Pete, he then sees his attorney. Why, Pete, it's Franklin Nelson, who introduces himself as Franklin Nelson. Effortless recap. Yeah, of the firm, however, of Hogar, Chow, and Benowitz. But Foggy recaps here that uh, Cage, as he wants to be called, made it through prison without throwing a punch, something that must have been hard for a person of his reputation. Um, we, we get a name check on Claire. It's lawyers only here. Um, and Luke has a bus to catch. Pete, do you think that Foggy took the bus down? I don't think he took the bus down. Maybe that uh, that Hogarth, uh, Chow, and Benowitz, uh, you know, corporate jet. Yeah, so I guess, I guess here's what I'm thinking. Whatever it is that brought the firm of Hogarth, Chow, and Benowitz and the, uh, the services of one uh, Foggy Nelson – whether it's pro bono or they did a Kickstarter or, or whatever, you're telling me this guy has to take the bus home. Meanwhile, the lawyer that came down to see him <laughs> off is going to not like either. He, cause I, Seagate is in South Carolina. Uh, that... No, it's in uh, Atlanta or it's in uh, Georgia, Georgia. Okay. So I mean, I guess my point being this, if foggy drove down, drive the dude back. If foggy flew down, You've spent all this, even if it's pro bono, your, your hourly rate and your this and that, the other. You're already in pr- certainly tens of thousands of dollars, if not six figures. You're telling me that you can't buy the dude a $300, $200 airline ticket and just charge it to the firm? <laughs> and then when you go back, hey, people of New York, Hogarth, Chow, and Benowitz, we're not evil lawyers. Why, we help the hero of Harlem himself. <laughs> and I realized that that would take away what they are setting up, which is Luke gets off the bus and Claire right. is there and the, and all of that. Get but I just coffee. mention it, get some coffee. I, I just mention it because this is a, this is a very f- solid episode. This is an episode that has to do a lot for a lot of, has, has to make a lot of uh, waves for a lot of different type of viewers, new viewers, viewers who watch, but have forgotten people who've seen the feeder series nine times needs to work for all those people. But this is an episode that has its underwear showing. You can see why the parts are working as they do in scene after scene after scene, which is okay because you do need to set things up. But by the end of this episode where we finally set things up, we are one-eighth through the whole thing. That's all. I mean, and and that's just it. And when we segue into the next scene of the Braille uh teletype and Wait, Pete, I, I don't know who you're talking about can you tell me what color the scene is predominantly because i cannot keep track of four people who look very different <laughs> and the and the red hues and the close-ups oh, that must of, be daredevil then okay go daredevil ahead. yes and to see matt murdoch practicing his i would assume opening arguments or summation it's not quite clear and then with that uh, you know, super sensitive hearing to uh, hear an altercation between two men to kind of get his Irish up and then boom, there's a cop on there and his blood pressure kind of comes down a little bit. I think it's a really great way to uh, reintroduce the character. It is. And then it's a nice transition. He resumes practicing his argument, which then cuts to the resumption of that argument in court. Um, which was well done. 
that court scene unfolds. It's a standard corporate chemical cover-up. Uh, Matt tears the guy to shreds. We see a defendant in the wheelchair. Uh, this presumably and then later confirmed to be uh, the defendant's personal toll from the chemicals. Um, I think this scene largely exists to show that Matt Murdock is an able uh, attorney, even by himself. Um, and Pete, we have proof of that. We have 11 million pieces of proof because the next scene we cut to victory. They've won $11 million and they're outside the courtroom in, in the hall there. And, uh, Pete, that's where Matt's going to chat up the kid, kind of put a smile on his face. Well, <laughs> uh, not so much being able to deliver an $11 million payday for his pain and suffering is one thing. But the discussion of uh, the boys' anger, of Aaron James's anger over uh, now being in a wheelchair, and as much as um, Matt tells him he hopes he'll walk again, he probably won't. And like Matt, having been injured through an accident and uh, you know overcompensating for that injury, really kind of the the stick esque. Um, less sticky, if you will, uh, pep talk of, all right, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps now and, uh, you know, be able to do this on your own. Cause, uh, you got to work through your anger and, um, you know, money is not going to necessarily fix the rest of your life. I, I certainly would not presume to know what one in that young man's position uh, needs to hear from a, a therapeutic sense, a clinical sense, et cetera. Uh, I, I like that there was Matt who has been on the other side of this, uh, of this, this journey uh, being struck with a, with a disability and dealing with the change in life and all that. I like that he's um, basically saying, here's where you, here's where you're going to end up. If you can push yourself there, start taking care of yourself because everybody else, Matt is saying through experience, everybody else is going to start to follow kind of these predictable channels of how they are going to emotionally process the change in your life. And they're going to do what they have to do and think it still is the nice thing and mean, mean well. But, you know, it's time for you to step up, even though it's tremendously unfair. It also shows yeah. Matt as a slightly somewhat pessimistic person but also going to tell you the way it is. So this is win, win, win. I don't know if it casts him in, in that pessimistic a light. He has become successful both professionally and privately in terms of this approach. It was not a, an approach he was prepared to take on his own. And, you know, Luke Skywalker becomes Obi-Wan Kenobi. Daredevil here is kind of become again. I, I like Stick as the the mentor character for him. He's he's kind of become a, a kinder, gentler mentor character to this, you know, uh, you know, wheelchair bound boy in Aaron. It is interesting to think that this is an episode that amidst doing all the the other heavy lifting that I that I addressed earlier. Um, we see not one, but two examples of mentorship in a little bit. We're going to have Luke Cage in, uh, in a little bit more of a demonstrable scene, uh, reaching out to a young man to kind of, to mentor him, uh, something I hadn't quite considered there. Um, but Pete going on behind all of this, 
you know, there's the reporters and whatnot on the one side. Then uh, another reporter, Pete, I believe that's, is that Karen Page from the, from the bulletin? Is that who it, walks up? It is, you know, and, and uh, she's everywhere these days, Matt. And um, listeners to our Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek for season two in particular, uh, you know, might remember that uh, as a, as a once full-time uh, reporter myself, I took the show to task a little bit over how quickly they accelerated Karen. Um, does it need to be what it is for the show? It does. But the idea that, uh, as she says at one point, Ellison is pretty much given her free reign and she's on the front cover as a columnist of the bulletin months, maybe a year into this now. I mean, she was breaking stories left and right. Uh, in Iron Fist with the chemical company and um, Danny Rand coming back and all that. Again, it's what the show needs to do, but it's in no way that believable. Not that a woman can't do this, that a, a, a Karen Page, you know, fresh from the, the breakup of uh, Murdoch and Nelson, uh, you know, running down some facts, boom, front page columnist. <laughs> Uh, Pete, I will defer to your, your news world knowledge on that. Let me ask you this. Should Karen Page be covering a trial Absolutely where she has a... not. No. <laughs> Just to finish the thought, she has a prior... <laughs> at least publicly, she has at least worked for Matt Murdock, let alone the smoochin', let alone the daredevilin'. Um, so so that, that might be a little bit of an ethical quandary such a conflict of interest um could she she certainly could and and are there reporters who cover people they have dated or what have you there absolutely are however um you know give you a a an example with politics there are reporters who feel so strongly that their um their reporting is going to be compromised they don't even vote in um they don't vote at all some of them don't vote at all certainly would not vote on the contest that they would be covering so um you know again there there are high examples there are low examples uh we'll 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 leave it in the middle map before we head up to the clouds well pete just before we head up to the clouds uh you know it, there there seems to have been iciness between the two of them um and then she says that uh you know she could get a quote for the newspaper over food and uh pete they're gonna go build some bridges at a diner and we're gonna return to that in a little bit but i just wanted to allow for that segue there pete take us up to the clouds in a in a in a scene that for my money was not hewed with enough green in it <laughs> i was confused what was going on why is one of the Sand Sisters on a jet? I, I was completely confused without the color coding applied to the other characters. Back in the old uh, Rand corporate jet, Matt, and um, thought for a moment we were going to place Danny in the cockpit. I'm like, what? He's flying now? No, we're we're headed towards the back, towards the apparently spacious bathroom on this private plane. I've been in private planes um, I've never seen a bathroom this big. Of one. <laughs> to be fair, I think that narratively, 
it is a, the show cheats a little bit, which is we yeah. see from presumably an objective camera, we see the the kind of interior, um, not the cockpit, but the interior seating area. Um, and then the camera moving towards the bathroom door. We see Danny in the bathroom pretty quickly. This uh, The this... tattoo with the slash across the tattoo, Matt, you know, visually hinting and stuff. How do you mean? He got that cut at the in the fight. He did, but they could have cut him anywhere. It could have been a cut beneath um... his tattoo. Instead to have the, uh, while it's not perfectly diagonal, it's diagonal enough to indicate to the viewer, hey, this is the Iron Fist because he's got the tattoo, but there's now a big red scratch across it. Kind of like he is the Iron Fist, but is he the Iron Fist? And then traumatic flashback. He is Spider-Man no more. Um, but yeah, anyhow, traumatic flashback slash vision slash whatever. Um, here, Pete, by the way, when he looks up, first of all, a couple of things. I really don't want to sound nitpicky, especially to new listeners. You know, I wasn't blown away by this episode, but I hope I'm not coming off as overly negative. There's this lengthy, he's, he's got the water coming down his face and there's like drops coming off the tip of his nose towards the camera. And I'm like, oh, why are we getting boogies on me? Maybe that's my own thing. I don't know. But anyhow, Pete, when he looks in his reflection, he's pensive. He's emotionally beaten. Pete, there's multidimensional acting going on. Here's your improvement over yes. much of Iron Fist where it's like, I'm just cocky, happy-go-lucky guy. Like there's there's pathos here. Well, and and then when he confronts himself in the in the Empire Strikes Back Yoda cave here, uh, with with all the with all the monks, with all the dead monks, with uh, bloody monks who are looking on him, um, and being told that because of you, the hand has won, and again the tattoo visible, the slash from um, his uh, left shoulder down to his right side. Uh, it's all that visual storytelling and we've got the panicked, uh, Danny and the, uh, firm and calm Danny telling him he let these monks in Kunlun die. Pete, why did his dream world double, uh, exist at a higher height than Danny did? Now, anything's possible in a dream. Don't get me wrong, but you think if you're going to see your double, he wouldn't be taller than you. <laughs> I don't know whether that was now, like some now profound. That, now, now that you're saying that, um, yeah, it, it playing it back, it, it definitely catches the eye. Um, all I know is this, this poor guy has had so many things go wrong in a private plane and he awakens to turbulence. That's gotta be the scariest thing ever. No wonder he's having nightmares and Colleen's trying to keep him together. In order to endear him to the Marvel TV audience, a character that, you know, had a little bit of a bumpy birth in, in, in terms of the show getting off the ground and all that. Pete, everybody likes James Bond, right? Everybody likes gadgets. They should have gotten him a rocket powered hovercraft. <laughs> so he just could have, he could have been, he could have been standing like, like, you know, and I don't mean the small one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a $30 million yacht on the inside, but you see it kind of going over 
over the water there and he could be kind of like standing out looking at the water kind of wearing one of those like sea captain big button jackets and and got the little white hat on he could be like jeeves get me another get me another uh, expensive whiskey and then he could have his little vision everybody would like him more it was more than a vision. He was screaming. He won't really confide in Colleen what it is. The recap that they've been chasing the hand for months. Um, is and that maybe he, since April or May? Exactly. This is several months. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, again, everything that's that's gone wrong in Danny's life has essentially happened on airplanes. Um, the idea that he would even talk to these pilots without it coming up that um, the the pilots on his uh, ill-fated flight with his parents uh, were poisoned by uh, the hand. Um, you know, really, not that it's it's dropped there, but I thought it it might have been worth checking in with that information. well, the the scene concludes with Danny asking, what do they want in New York? With that, Pete, we cut to the introduction of the, uh, as of yet, unnamed Sigourney Weaver character. Um, she is in this resplendent coat. I just want to mention, as this hospital scene unfolds, which is an effective introduction of her situation, and frankly shocking to me, I was not expecting to, to feel sympathy for her precisely five seconds after she's introduced as right. the bad guy, the bad gal, the bad person. I wish they did something different with the score in this scene. Um, if there was just some sort of, I don't know, classical, elegant offering in the background to show how classical and elegant she is, which would then contrast with the the awfulness of her situation. I don't know, it just felt like the music could have told me better how to feel, which is, a, you know, the, 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 the job of music in uh, TV and film. But I digress, Pete. The nurse tells her to disrobe jewelry and all, and uh, we see the towering and powerful uh, character having this private moment where she uh, where she's doing just that, placing her hand on that frosted glass there, um, obviously looking uh, sick. Something something's up with her, and definitely not the place you would expect them to introduce the villain we were at new york comic con the day that she signed the contract and was introduced to the world to new york as the villain of the defenders such a huge get for them and uh to to bring her in this way an actress of her caliber um i i can't say enough about it you know to get that that vision of her uh, breathing heavily, the the hand again, the visual storytelling, and then to see her, you know, to to see the villain in a in a hospital gown, mm. uh, you know, I I think Marvel Netflix has done such great work with its bad guys, um, whether it's a Fisk and seeing the the torment that that he experienced there, a Cottonmouth in now an Oscar winning actor in Mahershala Ali uh, and now Sigourney freaking Weaver, Matt in an MRI machine. It's an incredibly powerful moment. It is preceded by the doctor reviewing the findings with her. 
Uh, again, kind of expo expositional download here, but that's what you need. Her red uh, blood cell count is uh, low. Every organ is close to shutting down. Uh, even someone of her means uh, is uh, cannot be helped by this. Um, total side note, Pete, and I, 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 I again, I want to say if you're a new listener, I, I don't think I'm ever nitpicky. I think I, I have attention to detail for this stuff. If I'm coming across as nitpicky, I apologize. Pete, she's in the, the undressing room, the dressing room. She's not wearing socks or little hospital footies, and she gets walked on over to the MRI, and I'm just like, it, to me, it just struck me as that's not what you do in a hospital. Furthermore, let's just forget what the real world is. We have superpowers and whatnot. You're asking her to walk barefoot over where this these people are. I, again, I don't want to spend too much time on it. I've seen this episode twice. It caught my eye both times. Like, that's not real, and it's taking me out of the reality of the moment. However, we know that wherever she is, is under some kind of hand control. If these are not hand doctors to begin with. So again, I'm fine with it. The idea that she's walking on this untouched set <laughs> uh, with her bare feet that no one would ever in their right mind not wear the, 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 the footy uh, things they give you. But the upshot is that the doctor says it could be months, it could be weeks, and now we have some kind of urgency for this character as far as whatever it is she's attempting to accomplish. With that, we cut to, well, it's kind of a bluish purple, so it must be Jessica Jones. <laughs> um, she is spilling her coffee in the elevator. She is foul-mouthed. Uh, but outside her office door, there's a mom and daughter uh, looking for for the missing husband and father. Side note again here, you know, you end Jessica Jones season two with she's open to taking cases. And Pete, correct me if I'm wrong. She got the new glass in, right? Um, I'm not remembering. I thought that she did and then it broke. That definitely did happen. I, I So I won't I won't pin myself to that last claim. Yeah. But Again, here we are kind of at this weird moment where it's like she's reverted to a point not where when last we saw her, which I get it if she's going to be completely off-putting and whatever about finding this guy, John, and then maybe, you know, a little hope grows in her and she's going to maybe check it out a little bit. I get that for this story, but, you know, if hashtag it's all connected, as Jeff Loeb always says, or as Jeff Loeb <laughs> says, you guys always make fun of me when you always say it's all connected – um regardless this isn't quite the jessica jones that we saw last time but fine so be it i'm i'm fine with this jessica jones transition in the same way i'm fine with the uh the whirring of the mri machine and the close-up of uh sigourney weaver's alexandra and then boom the uh the mirror uh, image of uh, Jessica Jones in the elevator. But we have the wife and daughter of a Mr. John Raymond. Um, the daughter's kind of salty and it's a, it's a nice um, foil, if you will, for uh, Jessica. Uh, the mom's really trying to get her to take on the case as far as uh, he up and vanished. Everything was fine. John's like clockwork. And then boom, he's gone. He's an architect. Hmm, Matt, who do we know that could use architects? And uh, what, what what is something that an architect might work on that we've seen before? 
buildings. <laughs> Wait a minute, Pete. Wasn't there a whole bunch of building going on in the Hell's uh, Kitchen section of New York City? You know, what with uh, all the post uh, attack of Battle of New York, Chitari stuff. And the incident, the, Matt. We call the it incident. the incident oh, yes. in the uh, Marvel Netflix universe. Um, but no sooner does Jessica get into her office than, all right, time compression, needing to, to move on here. We get the phone call with the vocalizer uh, not to take on the John Raymond case. By the way, Pete, a quick check. Sure enough, Jessica Jones season two ends with the broken uh, door there. So a big, a big, uh, big thumbs up to you for remembering it as it was, not as we wished it would be. I, I had a one and two shot. <laughs> that is true. Um, but anyhow, yes, back to the uh, the, the, the vocalizer thing there. Um, don't look for John Raymond. Um which I guess is that's 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 a compelling moment on which to end at least that scene. We cut to gold, so it's Luke Cage. He's on that bus home. Get a little bit of a montage of him entering the city, entering Harlem, Pop's Barbershop. Uh, he steps right off the bus, Pete. He takes one full step off the bus, then stop, looks up, enjoying his freedom. You know, your standard, beautiful uh, Shawshank Redemption crane shot looking down. He feels the sunshine, so on and so forth. He kind of blocks the people who are trying to get off the bus behind him. The but... new Harlem Renaissance uh, billboard on the side of the bus as well. Yes, definitely a good touch. Um, and uh, Pete, Claire is there ready for coffee. Now, Pete, they then don't have coffee. I'm, I'm a little confused here <laughs> as somebody who is pure of mind and heart. Uh, well, let's just say, Matt, that the coffee was hot and satisfying um joking aside they of course do what lovers do on a kitchen table partially clothed <laughs> um, with the with a blurry uh wide shot in between <laughs> both both grunting as i see from the subtitles <laughs> uh, afterwards pete there's a little bit of a catch me up what's been going on says luke cage since you know the end of luke cage season two Harlem it's, is changing and Mariah is still around. Which was great, but none of the, hey, I fought the hand with uh, Danny Rand and this this cool girl, Colleen. You're going to love him. Yeah. Um, so I guess, again, Pete, here what we have is the episode's underwear showing a little bit. Wouldn't she be so proud to talk about, even if she's not going to worry him and get into whole, you know, fighting the hand and uh, a near fatal uh, poisoning was that what had poisoned her Pete? Was that a, a, a stabby weapon? A stabby weapon indeed. <laughs> but anyhow, Pete, surely she would have said, Hey, you know, I took some uh, martial arts uh, lessons to me. That would have been more meaningful than like previously on Luke Cage season two, but I that's dig... what they're doing here, which is previously on Luke Cage season two. I dig the relationship deepening between the two of them, the discussion of, um, you know, he had some hard days inside. We know before he didn't throw a punch. So we're, we're, we're filling that out. And also that, uh, they wrote letters that, that she plagiarized the poem that he wrote his own. Um, and, and to see that go on 
and to have the scene interrupted by Misty, someone he's been intimate with as well, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think adds a layer that, you know, th- these shows get a bad rap um, in that it's often said they're not complex. And when you've got the cavalcade of characters we've already seen in, in this one episode of Defenders, Matt, from so many of the different shows, um, I just think it's it's been said, it's been said by Jeff Loeb, we have to, um, you know, certainly categorize that. But this is the most ambitious project in TV and taking four different shows to wind up at this one show. Nothing else has done that, um, at least set out with a goal like that, you know, in a way that, all right, here's Star Trek and, you know, six spinoffs. But um, I, I, I think a, a scene like this to bring in um, two powerful women on this show on uh, a Marvel Netflix universe loaded with powerful and, and strong examples of of the feminine form. Um, yeah, man, sign me up for more. Well, as you said, sure enough, Misty Knight uh, shows up um, and uh, says that she's not looking to interrupt. She just wants to go for a walk. From that, we cut away. Uh, we cut to a diner in red. So we're back to the, the daredevil portion of the story. And Pete, what unfolds, by the way, because I looked it up, is uh, a scene taking place in uh, the Metro Diner that's 2641 Broadway in uh, New York, uh, Upper West Side uh, Diner, real place. I, I put it on my Google Maps. Maybe one day uh, <laughs> I slash we end up there and we can say, look, uh, we're having lunch where the Daredevil was. Um, this is a scene that is extremely, extremely oddly composed visually. And I have nothing but esteem for director S.J. Clarkson, who has a a wonderful and long history of fantastic stuff. I don't know what's going on in this scene. There's a giant pole that separates the shot for us. Now, is it actually there in the diner? I I think so, at least based on this one picture I'm looking at on Google Maps. But still, it's like it it separates the, the... I don't know the, the the two sides of the screen in a strange way. At times, the composition's our heroes, a little yeah. a little off, as is the angle that they shoot from. Um, but again, you're you're going to put a, a director of photography on that and how they choose to do it. Okay, that really comes down to um, how the director indicated to him he wanted that to happen. Um, but here again, the relationship on display between these two characters, um, they were coming closer and closer. He uh, chose to expose the daredevil identity to Karen and uh, they headed in opposite uh, trajectories at the end of season two. Um, so with Murdoch and Nelson kaput, Foggy off doing his thing for uh, Hogarth, Chow, and Benowitz, and uh, yeah, she's she's a reporter now. Uh, I I dig the the sweater and and uh, yeah, let her let her do her thing. Um, 
it's kind of awkward in a way that it has to be. It is the fact that they're trying to emotionally connect uh, and not a hundred percent successful at it. That, that does come across the scene. Uh, even with the one shot where the camera's like 20 feet away and it's like, they're spying on them just weird visually, but we get a lot of good information there. Uh, and then Pete, we, uh, we cut to wide shots of New York bathed in blue back to Jessica Jones stuff. Um, there's this interesting wraparound shot that the camera's circling around Jessica. As she sits at her desk, uh, searching online for information on the missing man. Uh, Malcolm shows up. He's got a key, Pete. That's how you know they're friends. And he's there for a soda. <laughs> and this time it's not a metaphor of a caffeinated beverage, but he's actually there for a soda pop. Yeah, ginger ale, I believe. And seeing where he was having struggled, obviously, with drugs in uh, the first season of Jessica Jones and now kind of as the the buddy character for her really moody uh superhero um it it, it works he's Ika darville is a is a great presence on screen and and really kind of uh smooths out her sharp edges indeed pete he recommends that since she's on the case no she's not on the case well it kind of looks like she's on the case um that uh, she should try and trace the call she says that couldn't be done it was blocked uh, but then calls up the operator, gives a baloney story where she's looking for grandpa. He, I he... love when Jessica Jones pretends to be somebody she's not. That's that's one of my favorite things that this character does. Um, I go back to the uh, the first season of the show when she was, you know, she'll over the phone play the really uppity voice hi you know what's going on that kind of thing and and here playing a a ditz trying to get the uh the block number and uh i love it yeah it's it's totally totally believable um and uh <laughs> shock against shock pete it's to a specific geographic area that's right it's to a payphone and I give the show credit because they had the, the show has her say who uses a payphone nowadays because What's they need a pay it to phone, Matt. They need it to Is be a payphone. Is that where I go phone. and pay my phone? It's where you put you put coins in the phone to make a phone call. Matt, what, coins with like <laughs> bitcoins? You put Maybe, bit, Pete. You put bitcoins in your phone? No. <laughs> the fact that this is this is you know, uh, ever increasingly low odds that this would be done. The fact that the show has her scoff at how ridiculous this is because they need to get her to a specific spot and they're not going to spend forever with her, you know, hacking the cell network map, blah, blah, blah. It's like, all right, we need to get her to a certain address. And this is me tapping my watch. I don't know why I'm doing a sound. Anyhow, she needs to get a move on because there's only so much left of the episode. So they take her to a payphone and she scoffs at the idea that it's a payphone, but they get her there anyway. I give you credit show. Uh, Luke Cage and Misty on their walk there, a little uh, recappy cap with uh, talk of taking down Diamondback and Mariah and everything else before we get to some of the lesser players from Luke Cage season one, that of Candace and her brother, Matt, 
as it turns out, has uh, has suffered a similarly uh, sad fate. Yes, yeah, sad fate, a mysterious fate. Uh, there's a burned out car that's presumably an accident. However, this is one of seven such accidents in uh, the last few months. A squeaky clean situation. Mom has moved out to New Rochelle. Um, new job, new cash. Um, Misty speculates that perhaps uh, these might be couriers or perhaps this deceased young man might have been a courier, maybe somehow connected to Mariah. Um, but Pete and, you know, Luke is all ready to say, you know, uh, let me know I can, how I can help on the fringes of the law. Misty doesn't want him to find the bad guy. She wants him to guide the young man's brother, uh, Candace's brother as well. Uh, Pete, Luke Cage is the new pops. Not yet. Um, and, and with the explanation from Misty that she's no longer a detective, up in Harlem, but on a citywide task force, obviously increasing the scope for this Defenders series um, to cast Luke in a mentor-esque role. It makes sense with everything that Pop was to him, but I, I, I don't think he's there just yet because of how active he is as far as a hero. Well, maybe it's as active as he could be. You know, maybe he can fill that role in the community. She stresses the fact that though she's now on the citywide task force, Harlem is still home. So maybe she's looking for for him to step up as he's trying to find a new role. Well, hey, Matt, is that the guy who cleaned up Crispus Attic's? That Pete, I think that is, says guys from across the street and down the street as they look at him and say, hey, that's the guy. And then there's the guy that apparently goes to confession each and every day. There is. And Pete, I was starting to get a little confused because <laughs> I listen, uh, Pete, uh, I, 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 what I'm about to say, there's no shame in it. I don't feel any shame. I feel proud of it. Okay. I don't, I don't judge people on looks and so on and so forth. The show knows that it's, it's difficult to tell apart Luke Cage from Jessica Jones, from Danny Rand to Matt Murdock. So luckily, we're in a church that's bathed in red or has some red elements. So I know we're back to the Matt Murdock story. Matt is giving confession to Father Lantum. And Pete, his big, his big error here is that he has lied to, uh, to Karen Page about not missing the daredevil life. Father Lantum says, Pete, that shows indecision. But he ain't about that life anymore, Matt. And uh, Electra is gone. The things that Electra brought out of him, um, seemingly gone with them. We know because of the opening scene and because of the uh, the final scene that Electra is indeed out there, and uh, these things will again be summoned out of the devil of Hell's kitchen. I don't mean to beat a dead horse here. Some odd framing in this scene, too. Uh, it's kind of as though at times we are viewing both Lantham and Matt through a little, I don't know, opening in the in the confession booth. It's, it's somewhat strange. Um, it's the classic confession 
shot though you know you've got to have the 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 mesh screen there the the other one where it's kind of a view from the the curtain i think it's a stylistic choice i bought it i certainly bought it too i i'm just curious who is it who is who is it who is going for a bit more avant-garde with the camera work that's all it, it wasn't none of these camera concerns were were um taking me out of the story or things of that sort or, or, or so strange that I didn't know what was going on. It was just, it's unusual for what tends to be um, a certain Marvel, Marvel Netflix style. Yes, there are different showrunners and there's different tones and, and diversity to that. And that's all wonderful. But just in terms of a TV production, you kind of, you know, they, they feel all in the same, in the same Marvel New York kind of thing. It's just, this was uh, a little different. That's all. But Pete, let's now move on to the still unnamed Sigourney Weaver character sitting in the park, joined by Madame Gao, who, as the scene unfolds, again, it's it's not just a scene that exists for its own purposes. It's trying to uh, advance the story somehow, right? Clearly, Madame Gao knows the Sigourney Weaver character. The relationship and hierarchy isn't clear, but it sure becomes quickly clear as uh, the birds <laughs> get fed and the value of Manhattan is uh, pontificated upon. Boy, does it. The elegance between these two characters, the discussion here, the the true story of how the uh, Dutch purchased uh, Manhattan for $24. Uh, Alexandra certainly seems to think that uh, they overpaid. So... This park that they're in hasn't become high rises for some reason. And we're going to come around to uh, their contacts in the mayor's office are ready to proceed in three months. But Matt, that's months. You know, uh, how could the final phase begin in months when uh, somebody has months or weeks? Pete, it's almost like that sense of urgency, which you noted from the the earlier Sigourney Weaver scene. Now that is now that has come to fruition. Uh, indeed, uh, the, the the Sigourney Weaver character um, wants to up that timetable. Oh, uh, Gao counsels against it. She's told make it happen anyway. And then, if you weren't clear on the hierarchy, uh, Madame Gao is then asked feed the birds. Uh, because Sigourney Weaver is leaving, and there's an interesting shot of what appear to be real pigeons flying across the camera's view as Sigourney Weaver walks away. I'm not complaining. It's a cool shot. It is. It's a cool scene, and Wai Ching Ho just oozes uh, both this otherworldly uh, charm, and at the same time, she's kowtowing to Sigourney Weaver's character. Yeah, it's it like many scenes in this episode and to be completely honest, like most scenes in most episodes, you know, there's a there's a purpose to them. It's not just, you know, it's not cigarettes and coffee where two characters just exist in their own kind of, you know, unmoving uh status. This scene is particularly well done in in spelling out these particulars and giving some of that character aesthetic there. We cut to Luke Cage, who heads into a building there. Uh, again, we know because we see some gold hues. There was purple. I was hopeful. Oh, we're going to get him and Jessica together, but not just yet. Um, and uh, 
some toughs, Matt, you know, listening to the music in the hallway as as you do when you're in your formative years. Uh, they notice that it's Luke and instantly give up the location of the young man he's looking for. Indeed, he's there for Cole. Um, Cole says that his brother wasn't mixed up with the wrong people, but 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 his death was an accident. Uh, it, it appears Cole is doing all right for himself, uh, or so Luke supposes, because there are not one, not two, but three pairs of new sneaks and two empty pizza boxes, Pete. That is classic cinematography to show you're doing all right living large yo indeed and uh though cole says that luke shouldn't call him son luke presses you know trying to be the pops here uh cole asks him to leave repeatedly and um it, you know it appears luke doesn't quite have that that uh mentoring spirit down yet but he does step into a golden hallway with a blinking bulb overhead Cut to Jessica Jones stepping into a blue hallway with a blinking bulb. That's a transition, <laughs> Pete. It is indeed. And uh, once there, Matt, it's all about where this is going to lead this investigation, looking for this uh, John Raymond. Yeah, and we had been told in the previous scene that it was in a – you know, a sketchy area. That's what, uh, that's what Malcolm had, uh, had mentioned. And, um, she's banging on the door. Oh, I know you're in there. The, the guy downstairs said so. Um, she ends up breaking the doorknob and, uh, walks into a blue hued room. Uh, TV is on. She does some searching around and then Pete, she finds boxes and boxes of demolition charges. I wonder if that's going to come into play by the end of the episode. Uh, well, not, not those particular charges. Let's, let's put it that way. Fair enough. With that, Pete, we cut to a rooftop location where back in Daredevil season one, Gal talked to the Kingpin also in a completely different cinematic universe. Uh, there was a scene from Spider-Man one or Spider-Man two that took place up there. Uh, I believe it's right by St. Patrick's Cathedral. But here we have Gao updating the unnamed Sigourney Weaver character that arrangements have been made for the thing. And um, the Sigourney Weaver character does not want to hear any discussion as to whether this is a good idea or not. Well, off of the scenic vista from atop that, uh, you know, garden balcony, Matt, we get a green hued. <gasps> helicopter interior with uh danny and colleen coming back to the greatest city in the world or is it yeah this is where danny ever likable muses that the greatest city in the world might not be that why would you have him say that even if you don't know that there was backlash <laughs> backlash over iron fist which by the way i'm pretty there sure they did yet. Maybe, okay, fine. Maybe there wasn't yet. When, when when they recorded that line, there definitely wasn't. Um, and I'm not even like saying, oh, because we're on the East Coast, New York is the greatest city in the world. It's one of the characters in the show, you know, like to get that New York feel in it. Whether you're watching this from an hour and a half drive from New York as we are, if you're watching this in any other country in the globe, why is he bagging on New York? He's He's a New York kid. I don't get it. I don't get it, Pete. 
But then Matt is in his apartment. He's fishing around in the fridge. Dogs bark. Uh, birds suddenly squawk. And we know it's the classic. The animals are are sensing something is happening. Sirens suddenly wail. And there's vibrations. There is. And I, I will give credit here to the uh, the, the camera work. It's not entirely clear how severe the the shaking ground is with Matt. Then we cut to Jessica Jones at her spot. She feels it too. Pictures start to fall off the wall. Cut to Danny and Colleen who have just landed. Lights are going out in the buildings in lower Manhattan. And a CGI crack. Comes up right to them and past them. Um, Cut back up to Harlem where uh, yeah, at the car where Sean died, his mother is mourning. The ground is now shaking so much that the cars are leaping in the air, Pete. No, no, this is not the Fast and the Furious, what with those hydraulics and whatnot. This is from whatever is, is, is ailing the island of Manhattan. A light pole falls down about to hit mom, but Luke Cage catches it, Pete. The island of Manhattan, something is happening. Yes, and I think the thing that this scene underscored for me, apart from the fact that something incredibly wrong is going on with Manhattan, is how terrifying it must be for a blind person to be in an earthquake. Pete, above all of this, we see back at that location where Sigourney Weaver was, she's watching the mayhem we hear you know people shouting there's this increasing hum of of chaos and response to chaos and and alarms and and whatnot uh she then turns and says to electra what i didn't see this in the preview that electra was going to be in this uh but great line pete it uh it's just a city you'll get used to watching them fall wow yes. chilling from, from uh the trailer of course and and with matt in his apartment uh, trying to get a grip on what's gone on there. The, the shot from beneath as things uh, still sway, then suddenly the, uh, the different colored lights. And I think we, we did a color check on each character there. We've got the red, the, the purple, the yellow and the green, um, the rooms spinning and uh, it's an effective way to hook you for the rest of the series. Everyone, turn to your left. It's time for the lineup. Pete, let's start with Electra, back from the dead. For somebody who doesn't utter a word in this episode, she certainly casts a long shadow. The opening sword fight both against the uh, the man that she defeats and then against Danny and then to show up at the very end of the episode on the rooftop there, kind of a really a primal look on her face um, as the uh, the earthquake has just subsided. We don't understand the context of this episode in the series what has gone on, but clearly her presence is somehow interrelated with that and uh, really gives her that that status. Yeah, I think that 
it is to the benefit of the viewer, which you and I are, and which I assume most of the people listening are, uh, the, the viewer who has seen um, all the, the five different seasons of the four shows where, irrespective of the preview, um, you could figure out that Electra was going to come back just by virtue of the fact that she was shown dead. And now we've seen more people coming back from the dead and we understand the machinations of the hand much better from uh, from iron fist side note pete i'm increasingly figuring out that despite the deficiencies of iron fist it covered a whole lot of stuff to help us understand the hand which maybe wasn't revelatory when it was happening in the series but we we, we know the situation much better because of iron fist uh and hence we have electra back from the dead yeah, I mean, the, the narrative heavy lifting that it had to do from an exposition standpoint, um, you know, makes it a, an entry that's necessary to move the pieces into position for this outing. Um, but it's with Alexandra, which we don't have named just yet, but hey, thanks publicity people for putting her name out there. Uh, this is this is not a Fisk situation where where we're going to dance around her name for uh, as long as we did with uh, Daredevil season one. But again, to see that frailty, to see her um, her sense of urgency in the way that she's dealing with uh, Gal, the hand, Electra and she's up to no good to what extent we'll talk about when we look at theories in our next segment. Well, Pete last here in our lineup is of course the, uh, the return of Madam Gao, a always a pleasant force on the screen, despite the fact that she does all this evil stuff. You know, she's, she's an elegant serpent. She really is. She shows up. She's got the cane. She lures you into a false sense of security. You never know if you can believe her and that she's intimidated by somebody else scares me. It is a very handy way to spell out the dread that we should feel because she was maybe not the tip top baddie, but she was the only surviving baddie, as I recall, from season one of Daredevil, showed up in season two of Daredevil, now has has continued to show up and continue to be this seemingly all encompassing evil for for you know the the worst of the baddies in new york and now we've met her boss really really effective way to to present things time to map out where this train might be heading with some theories well pete certainly first up uh if you remember the big giant hole at the end of uh, <laughs> daredevil season two now that's a bit more clear. We've had buildings shaking, you know, shaking Pete, not from the top, but from the bottom, one can assume. Uh, so clearly we're going to be diving deep into this, both literally and figuratively. Well, okay. So we have the whole, we have an architect missing. It doesn't take a genius to believe that these are somehow interrelated. But what with the whole is causing this uh, seemingly massive earthquake and how is Sigourney Weaver involved and Electra? All, all good mysteries. Certainly. Uh, I can't wait to dig into this. I 
feel like the eight episode um the eight episode format is going to let us have payoff sooner uh and we're going to have answers to these questions all the sooner as well well i'm going to throw a theory out and Ooh, okay. it it comes from the comics is this hole that's dug here in some way connected to uh, not the character you're going to instantly think about, Beast from X-Men, but the Beast from uh, Daredevil and connected to the hand in the comics? Uh, tell, <clears throat> tell me more about the Beast. I'm unfamiliar. Well, the beast uh, is is associated with the hand and uh, certainly with their uh, resurrection powers and uh, just a nihilistic, really uh, dark idea that uh, permeates the Daredevil comics. Well, I think you might be onto the to something there, Pete. We'll have to. Have to watch, keeping an eye out for the beast, but no blue hair. The 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 is important. <laughs> yes, Pete. Any more theories as we uh, as we look ahead? Well, you know, having discussed the the earthquake and how um, the missing architect might be involved there, I think the intersection of the episode is with Cole and his deceased brother, who was seemingly a courier for the hand. What is the connection there um, with the hand continuing to move their synthetic heroin? It certainly all fits. And I like that despite the heavy lifting that this episode has to do with reintroducing the characters, updating their timeline, so on and so forth. I like that you can still see beating beneath it some of those continuations that aren't explicitly spelled out. So... I look forward to finding out in the future episodes. Pete, before we dive on in to see what the, what the fans are saying about this episode, we want to take a minute to thank everybody who supports us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, helping us with those bandwidth and storage costs. And it lets us truly say the fantastic geek is listener supported. Cannot say enough about our patrons. Uh, whether you choose to give at the uh, the hand level, which is certainly Matt, where a Mary Kirk would would find herself, you know she's she's got access to all sorts of secret medical facilities, uh, you know, no weight MRI, the, the the whole nine yards from Fantastic Geek, or whether you're looking to just get in the door and uh, you know get access to all sorts of exclusive podcast content. Everybody gets something. Absolutely. So, yeah, whether whether it's the penthouse or the front door, it's all appreciated. It all truly, uh, truly helps make the podcast go, helps make the podcast grow. And uh, we appreciate it very much. Here's what our detectives have picked up in this episode. Pete, who are we hearing from first? Well, Terrence Young writes into the Fantastic Geek Facebook page. I'm watching The Defenders. I've finished all of the feeder shows, and I am enjoying your podcast. I have a question, though. I make a parallel between what's happening to Electra's character and Winter Soldier. Would you agree? He goes on a little later in a separate message, Matt. 
to uh, say that he could also make the parallel to Jean Grey. Ooh, that is that is very very interesting. Uh, that's a that's that's a good take on things. I well, like that. Given the convoluted rights issue with the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe and that character, uh, who is an X Men character, Matt, which the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Studios and Marvel TV do not have the rights to. Um, I guess, I mean, certainly we can have a parallel. I think maybe in light of not having the rights to their comic character, you create a character who's enough like that. I mean, we haven't seen it in this particular episode, um, but between the the reference to the Winter Soldier, which uh, you know viewers of this show would certainly understand, um, I, I think there are quite a few parallels between those two uh, pretty renowned characters and this incarnation of Electra. Pete, we also had heard uh, from uh, Henry Perno on Twitter. That's at Henry Dared, and he was sharing some general uh, podcast good cheer, saying that he just finished Defenders. Now, Pete, let me do some math here. This was at about <laughs> 4 p.m., so okay. he had uh, yeah. about 13 hours to watch it. Um, just finished Defenders. Can't wait to hear the podcast. Great to have you along for the ride there, Henry. Absolutely. Look forward to providing you with our insight as uh, we go through the show. Well, Pete, and now we're going to move to uh, to I guess some detectives getting uh, getting a bonus here. Uh, <laughs> we had put out a uh, a little um, uh, contest on uh, Twitter and on Facebook uh, to pick uh, to pick some listeners, to pick some fans. Uh, to win uh, not one, not two, but one of three copies of a, uh, a Jessica Jones uh, comic that um, is, you know, kind of ties into the uh, to the uh, MCU chronology. And Pete, uh, I have the names of two winners. You have the names of one. Are you ready, Pete, to hear the first winner? Please. Uh, first up is uh, Gal goes by the name Zero. That's at Kibble K I B B or Kibble K I B B L I E. And uh, next is uh, somebody who goes by Mega Dork. That's at Evil Spawn Twenty Three. Uh, I'm gonna be reaching out to both of them on Twitter later this evening to say congrats, you are a winner. But uh, Pete, you heard it first. They're winning two of the three Jessica Jones comics. Who have you plucked from your uh, your portion of the uh, the names in the old hat? And the third one is gonna come via Facebook. This is uh, from Debbie Fisher. Um, who uh, liked and shared the uh, status that we had on there. So congratulations, Debbie. You can reach out to the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, or you can reach out to us on Twitter. Absolutely. So uh, congrats indeed. Can't wait to get those in the mail. We've, uh, we've been looking forward to this particular giveaway for a while. So uh, exciting times here, Pete, as we kick off the Defenders podcast. There's more where that came from. <laughs> that there is that there is so if listeners would like to be in touch with us whether they are winners or whether they are i, I don't know the, the other kind of winners that henry perno and uh, and the gentleman from facebook are winners and that they reached out to us how can people be in touch pete with you 
You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,409 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you like. We are a fantastic geek that is fantastic with the P and the H. Fantasticgeek.com, fantasticgeek at gmail.com, fantasticgeek on Twitter and Instagram. You can also leave a, uh, a message on our listener line, 732-707-1815. Pete, that has got to be it, right? No, facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with ph all one word like it and you'll get defenders all those defenders feeders shows uh certainly everything else we're doing whether it's inhumans coming up whether it is star trek discovery uh or agents of shield as we count down to the return of really the fantastic geek mothership when it comes to podcasts indeed pete very very exciting times we will be back with defenders on tuesday uh we will be uh following a tuesday and friday release schedule as we make our way through this uh this exciting mini series so with that pete i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word come on the night's just getting started <laughs> <laughs>